Hi everybody, Jackson Michael of The Game Before the Money here and announcing that The Game Before the Money is now a national radio program that airs on over 75 stations on the Sports Map radio network every Saturday morning from 11 a.m. to noon Eastern. That's 10 a.m. to 11 Central. And you can listen on your local SportsMap Radio affiliate or at SportsMapRadio.com. The format is a little bit different than the podcast, but don't worry. I'm still going to post podcast episodes specifically like I have been doing, getting in-depth with Legends of the Game. I've got one coming up that I'm working on with Bob Stein, who was a member of the Super Bowl Four champion Kansas City Chiefs. So a lot's going to be staying the same. And in addition to that, you'll be getting additional content as I'll be posting the Game Before the Money radio show through the Game Before the Money podcast channel. This episode aired on July 9th, 2022 and featured Denver Broncos and Texas Longhorn legend Dan Neal, who played offensive line for the Super Bowl champion Denver Broncos. He shared stories about playing with John Elway and Terrell Davis and gave insights to how John Elway's leadership was essential to the success of that team. Dan started at guard for the Broncos in the Super Bowl. He also filled us in on what life is like in the NFL trenches. I spoke about the recent Baker Mayfield trade and gave a brief history of college football conference realignment. So kick back and enjoy this episode of the Game Before the Money radio show. All right, I hope you all had a great week and enjoyed your 4th of July. Very excited for the second edition of the show. Last week, Upton Bell was on the show, and he'll be a regular visitor to the program. Last week, I also talked about the importance of quarterback leadership and shared a story that Broncos lineman Dan Neal had told me about John Elway in Super Bowl 32. Well, he is going to be here to share that story with you firsthand later in the hour. He's also going to provide some really great stories about those back-to-back Super Bowl champion Broncos and what it was like to play with Hall of Famers like John Elway and Terrell Davis. Now, at the very top of this program, the first highlight you hear is Kurt Gowdy calling the immaculate reception by Franco Harris for the Steelers against the Oakland Raiders. That was in the 1972 AFC Divisional Playoff at Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh. A lot of people think the Immaculate Reception sent the Steelers to the Super Bowl, but it actually put them in the 1972 AFC Championship game against the Miami Dolphins. A couple of interesting things to tell you about that 1972 AFC Championship. The game was played at Pittsburgh, even though the Dolphins went undefeated that year. The NFL used to rotate home playoff games by division each year. So the undefeated Dolphins went on the road to play the Steelers in Pittsburgh. Miami won that game and subsequently the Super Bowl, of course. But that 1972 AFC Championship was the only time the Steelers lost a home playoff game 
in the 1970s. That's one of the unsung reasons for that Steelers dynasty. Part of it was because they were so dominant at home. Coming up, I'll give you some context on the Baker-Mayfield trade, share with you some college football conference realignment history, and Denver Broncos legend Daniel is going to share insights that you won't hear anywhere else than on the game before the money on the Sports Map Radio Network. Baker Mayfield was traded by Cleveland to the Carolina Panthers this week. I looked up Baker Mayfield's career stats and found something that piqued my interest. Mayfield's a four-year veteran, and he's thrown for at least 3,000 yards each of those seasons. All right, this is only the second episode of the show, but it's an opportunity for you listeners to get to know me. The first thing I did when I saw that stat was I looked up how many quarterbacks threw for at least 3,000 yards in each of their first four seasons. That's me. That's what I do. Here's what I found. According to Pro Football Reference, fewer than 45 quarterbacks in NFL history have ever put together four 3,000-yard seasons in a row. That's all time, whether it's their first four seasons or at any time during their career. Okay, so how many have thrown for 3,000 yards in each of their first four seasons? That number drops significantly to nine. So Baker Mayfield is one of only nine quarterbacks in NFL history to throw for 3,000 yards in each of his first four seasons. I also learned that he's third all-time in Cleveland Browns history for passing yardage. I know, that surprised me too. Last week, we talked about how there's an abundance of excellent young quarterbacks in the AFC. Quarterbacking in the NFC is still dominated by two all-timers in Brady and Rodgers, plus now Matt Stafford. But they're also going to retire soon, and that leaves the gates open for a few players to position themselves as the top quarterbacks in the NFC. Somebody's got to get named all-conference. Somebody's got to get named to the Pro Bowl. So I actually think that this trade to Carolina might turn out to be very beneficial for Baker Mayfield. Assuming he wins the quarterback job in Carolina over Sam Darnold and the Panthers commit to him, Mayfield is probably in a better position to be one of the top quarterbacks in the NFC rather than rise to the top in the AFC considering Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow, and Josh Allen are already on top of the AFC right now. Playing in the NFC, I think Mayfield has a better chance to make a name for himself and become one of the top quarterbacks in his conference. Not saying that he will do that, but I do think he has a better chance to be one of the top quarterbacks in the NFC and have a chance at making the Pro Bowl and the all-conference teams rather than he would playing in the AFC. Okay, one of the other nine quarterbacks in NFL history to throw for 3,000 yards in each of his first four seasons is Russell Wilson. Wilson was also traded this year from the Seahawks to the Broncos. Coming up later, former Bronco Dan Neal 
that's going to give us his take on what that means for Denver. There's no question that Russell Wilson adds a lot to the Broncos. They've struggled at the quarterback position lately. Yet last year, they still had an okay chance to make the playoffs in December. They've got some really promising young receivers on that team as well. Tim Patrick, Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy. I think this was a really good trade for the Broncos. And overall, the AFC West is going to be one of the most fun divisions to watch. All four teams have rivalries with each other dating back to the old AFL days. And from top to bottom, that division might have the best quarterback play in the NFL now that Russell Wilson's there. Russell Wilson knows how to win, and most importantly, he knows how to win big games. Also this offseason, Tom Brady retired, then came out of retirement to return to Tampa Bay. I wanted to take a look at a couple times in history when a legendary quarterback retired and then turned around and unretired. A lot of you probably remember Brett Favre doing the same. Coming back from retirement, Favre went to the Jets, who had been 4-12 the previous season, and they finished 9-7 with Favre at the helm. That was his only season there. Favre then went to Minnesota, and he was 40 years old at the time. He led the Vikings to the NFC Championship game, and they lost that game in overtime. The next season, he declined quickly after an injury. He suffered an ankle injury against the Packers and never was the same after that. His famous consecutive game streak came to an end and ultimately his career at the end of the season. Now, I think that's something to keep in mind with Brady because injuries are much more difficult to get past the older you get. Now, I'm only a couple of years older than Brady, and hey, I'm a bit stiff and sore after getting up from sitting on the sofa sometimes. So if Brady suffers a significant injury that forces him to miss time, it would likely take him longer to recover from that than it would if that injury had happened, say, seven or eight years ago. One of the other quarterbacks I wanted to mention who retired and then quickly unretired is Otto Graham. Arguably the only player to really have a comparable career in terms of championship football as Tom Brady. Otto Graham led the Cleveland Browns to a pro football championship game 10 years in a row. Now, I don't know if it's harder to believe that a quarterback played in 10 straight league championship games or that it was the Cleveland Browns in those 10 straight league championship games. But anyway, Graham announced that he'd retire after the 1954 NFL championship game. He led the Browns to a very convincing 56-10 victory over the Detroit Lions, who were also great in the 1950s. Cleveland coach Paul Brown asked Graham to return for one more season in 1955, and... Otto came back, and he proceeded to do what Otto did. He led the Browns to a lopsided win over the Rams in the 1955 NFL Championship game, and he won the NFL's Most Valuable Player Award. Now, Otto Graham was 34 at the time. Players didn't play as long back then, generally. Part of that 
was because players needed to have careers outside of football to make ends meet. And they had to make sure they had careers to go into after their playing days were over. So a lot of guys made that adjustment when they were offered the right situation outside of football. And that's a big reason why this program is called the game before the money. All right, to sum up, if Brady stays healthy, Tampa is going to be a tough out again. Remember, in the divisional round last year, they were down 27-3 to in the third quarter to the eventual Super Bowl champs, and they still tied the game at the end. The Rams had two long passes from Stafford to Cup in the final half minute. Otherwise, we might have seen Brady in at least the conference championship game and possibly the Super Bowl yet again. It literally took all the Rams had to hold that lead. The Rams' defense continued to put a lot of pressure on Brady, even during that second-half comeback. And the Rams also had a couple of stops after costly turnovers. What Tom Brady was able to do at 44 years old to bring them back in that game was remarkable. And he even led the NFL in passing yards and touchdowns last season. As I posted on the GameBeforeTheMoney.com, Warren Moon also played at age 44, but he was a backup for the Chiefs at the time. And many of you likely know that George Blanda is the oldest man to play quarterback. He did that at age 48, although Blanda really kicked field goals a lot more than he played quarterback during his last few years. For true greatness at Brady's age, you really have to look at other sports. Nolan Ryan, he threw a no-hitter at age 43 and another no-hitter at age 44. He retired at age 46. In hockey, Chris Chalios was still an outstanding player in his late 40s. And to give you some perspective on Chris Chalios' career, I watched him play college hockey when I was about 10 years old. And when he retired from the NHL, I was about to turn 40. Of course, another NHL great who played even into his 50s was Gordie Howe. I don't know. Maybe Brady's looking to be the next Gordie Howe, albeit in football. All right. Coming up later in the show, Broncos guard Dan Neal will share some John Elway stories on the game before the money on the Sports Map Radio Network. All right, we got USC and UCLA going to the Big Ten. And of course, we previously learned that Oklahoma and Texas were moving to the SEC. All of this news came out after the NIL Supreme Court decision. Now, I can't tell you if that's had a hand in all this, but I do wonder if bigger name programs took this into consideration because you're going to see now super matchups like Texas versus Alabama, USC versus Ohio State, teams with large followings and rich traditions who have seldomly played against each other. So it's going to be a huge draw in terms of advertising. So that's going to give kids potentially a chance to negotiate higher NIL deals with more marquee matchups during the season because it's going to raise their profile. That in turn is probably going to be a very powerful recruiting tool as well. Hey, if you come to our school, you're going to be playing a lot more highly publicized games than if you go to a school in another conference. That combination of playing in big-time games 
mixed with the potential to possibly make more NIL dollars, that's a lot to offer a recruit. And both of those factors are changing college football. It's obviously bringing more money into the game. You're going to have these mega conferences and you're going to hear about college players making a lot of money, like Bryce Young. The other side of the coin for college football fans, and I'm talking to the purists here, I think the competition in the smaller conferences might be as enjoyable as ever to watch. That's probably where you're going to find something closer to your traditional college football. I got to work for a couple of years in the press box for a school in the Sunbelt Conference, and it was great fun. Were those teams going to win the national championship? No. Was it enjoyable to watch? Absolutely. So here's something to remember as a fan moving forward, because NCAA football is probably never going to be like it was in the days when Keith Jackson announced the games on ABC. I'm a purist. I'm also a lifer, so I'll certainly be watching when Alabama plays Texas and Ohio State plays USC. But I'll also be enjoying what's going on in the conferences where the limelight isn't glaring. Now, historically, conference realignment, that's something that's been going on for a long time. You once had the 16-team Southern Conference. A lot of people might be asking, what's the Southern Conference? Maryland was part of the Southern Conference. Now, if you're like me, you grew up with Maryland and the ACC, but they were part of the Southern Conference for over 30 years before the ACC. Several ACC teams, in fact, came out of that Southern Conference. Clemson, Duke, NC State. You dig back further in Southern Conference history, and you had Alabama, Georgia, LSU, Tennessee. A lot of the SEC schools were in the Southern Conference. And a lot of them broke away from the Southern Conference to form the SEC. At one time, the Southern Conference had over 20 schools. And the Southern Conference still exists. It's an FCS conference, so it doesn't have the bigger schools like it once did, but it's still around. So mega conferences aren't exactly brand new. And USC and UCLA aren't the first major programs to move into the Big Ten. For a long time, the Big Ten was called the Western Conference. That's why Michigan's fight songs lyrics say the champions of the West. Michigan State was added in the early 1950s, and it's been called the Big Ten ever since. Penn State first played football in the Big Ten in 1993, and that was the first time that there were more than 10 teams in the Big Ten. And it was a really big deal at the time. A lot of people, myself included, I'll be honest, didn't like the Big Ten having 11 teams. It was a tough change for a lot of us purists watching college football at the time. That 1993 season, Penn State's first in the Big Ten, was an interesting year for the conference that year. Penn State finished in third place with a 6-2 and conference record, a half game behind co-champions Wisconsin and Ohio State, who both finished 6-1-1 and after tying each other. The Big Ten like pretty much every conference, was one division back then. 
and did not have a conference championship. The SEC was only in its second year of having divisions and a conference championship game back in 1993. Nebraska first played in the Big Ten in 2011. And then you had two divisions, the Leaders Division and the Legends Division. Later, the Big Ten added Maryland and Rutgers, so 14 teams, and now it's going to be at least 16. Nebraska used to be in the Big Eight, along with Oklahoma, and that was one of the greatest rivalries that college football has ever seen. Colorado and Missouri were both in the Big Eight as well. Missouri was in the Big Eight way back when the conference was called the Big Six. But the Big Eight broke up, and at that time, so did the Southwest Conference, which included Texas and Texas A&M. And the Big Eight and the Southwest Conference's breaking up helped create the Big 12. And now the future of the Big 12 is in its own state of flux. One major thing that did happen through that conference alignment, and I'm going to pay attention because we might see something like this happen again in the next few years. Nebraska is far from being the powerhouse that it was in the final days of the Big 8 and the early days of the Big 12. That was unthinkable watching college football growing up. As I noted on the game before the money.com, Nebraska put together 40 winning seasons in a row. 40 in a row, all above 500. There were no 500 seasons in there, all above 500. They finished in the AP top 10, 27 of those years. They haven't finished ranked in the top 10 since 2001. With Texas and Oklahoma moving to the SEC, and UCLA and USC moving to the Big Ten, I wonder if there'll be another traditional powerhouse that might lose its luster because only so many teams can consistently roll the table year after year. You're adding two more major programs to two of the strongest conferences in the country. Something's probably going to have to give in those conferences. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a tradition-rich program or two start to fall to the middle of the pack or maybe even lower. Speaking of the pack, the Pac-12 has its own wild story about conference realignment. The first incarnation was the Pacific Coast Conference, which lasted almost 40 years. Most of the schools that you affiliate with the Pac-12 now dissolved the Pacific Coast Conference and formed a conference called the Athletic Association of Western Universities. That name didn't last long, probably because it's way too long to say. And even the acronym AAWU is clunky. So that changed into the Pac-8, then the Pac-10, and later the Pac-12. The point is, conference realignment has probably affected every single major college football program at some point either by the conference adding members or others leaving or the conference dissolving. So as always, we're going to have to adjust as fans, but we've been through this before and we've also been through college players declaring for the draft early. I truly miss the long gone days when players played all four years. And now with the transfer portal and players not having to skip a year when they switch schools There's even more that we have to adjust to as fans. 
like I said before, it's never going to go back to the way things were. You hear the term new normal a lot. Well, we're going to have to adjust to a new normal when it comes to college football. And it's easy to say that it's all about the money and to let that affect your enjoyment of the game. But it really doesn't have to. I still love the Big Ten, even though they've had more than 10 teams for a long time. I still miss the old Big Ten. But last year's Ohio State-Michigan game proves that college football can be as enjoyable as ever. And, you know, bacon cheeseburgers are a lot more expensive than they used to be. And we still love them just as much. And we don't go around saying, I used to love bacon cheeseburgers, but now it's all about the money to the bar and grill. You know, we still enjoy our bacon cheeseburgers just the same. And we could do that with college football, even though it's going to be different from this point forward. But alongside the behemoth conferences, remember, we'll still have something closer to the original, I believe, with the smaller conferences. So with all the changes in college football, you know, remember, a lot of it is still the same game. It's four downs, it's blocking, it's tackling, it's the game of football that we love. And also remember, to quote Billy Joel, the good old days weren't always good. Remember, we had the poll era, and that was really challenging for us fans as well with all the split national championships. Now things get decided on the field much more. We have the four-team college playoff now, which I do think is the best format for college football. I'm a strong advocate for keeping it at four teams. That's another story for another day. But coming up on the game before the money, we have former Texas All-American Dan Neal. Dan's going to share with you a lot of great insights about his time playing with the Denver Broncos. He's going to give you the firsthand story of what he remembers about the play when John Elway took that famous helicopter hit in Super Bowl 32. He's going to talk about what it's like to block for a Hall of Fame running back like Terrell Davis and share with you some real insights on what life is like in the trenches in the National Football League on the game before the money on the Sports Map Radio Network. Remember to visit thegamebeforethemoney.com and check out the Game Before the Money podcast. All right, here with Dan Neal and uh, former guard for the Denver Broncos starting the Super Bowl with John Elway at quarterback. And you might remember last week, I was talking about quarterback leadership and how important that was. And Dan Neal has a great story about that. Dan, you were on, you were on the Broncos when, when Elway ran for a first down in the Super Bowl. And, and you had told me that, that that kind of helped change the dynamic of the game. What do you remember about that? Sure. You know, I'll, I'll make one comment real quick about, uh, you know, quarterback and leadership. It, is it's, it's a necessity that your quarterback be a leader. Uh, he's the, the guy that kind of manages the huddle in the offense, and so he needs to be the guy that everyone looks to. In addition, is he pulls the trigger on every play, whether it's a handoff or a throw. That's the guy that's making that offense go. So he, he's got to be in that position. And I say that because John was definitely one of those guys. Now, he was not a vocal leader at all. But we used to call him E.F. Hutton, and those older fans remember the E.F. Hutton commercials. You know, when E.F. Hutton speaks, everyone listens. 
Uh, he didn't say much, but when he did, you certainly listened to him. And he really, he, he led by example more than anything. And, and that brings to the story you're referring to in Super Bowl 32. Remember, John had been to three Super Bowls prior and lost every one of them. Uh, he knew he was coming to the end of his career, and he knew this may be his last chance to win the Super Bowl. And he wanted that, he wanted that ring really bad. And we're playing the, the defending Super Bowl champs in the Green Bay Packers. And, you know, it's a tight game. And we needed a first down down in the red zone to score, uh, you know, six instead of three, which is the key to winning these types of games. And I forgot the play. I think it was a pass play. But John rolled out, and John lowered his shoulder, and he ran. And to get that first down, he had to go and get hit. And he did that famous helicopter play where he flipped his head and feet flipped like a helicopter and ended up getting the first down. And right then is when everybody knew John was going to do whatever it took to win this game. We were not losing that football game. And, and sure enough, we ended up winning that game. Yeah, definitely. And, and that that affects you as a player, too. You're, when your quarterback is putting everything he's got into it, that inspires everybody else to put more into it on both sides of the ball, I would imagine. Oh, I, absolutely. You know, you watch guys, and, and I'm not being negative on quarterbacks. You know, their value is, you know, so great that they really can't get hurt. And you can see the, the things the league has done to ensure the safety of the quarterback. They're too valuable. In uh, there are quarterbacks that would not have lowered their shoulder and gotten that first down. They would have slid and then gone on to kick three and then try again later in the game to maybe make up for it. But John knew the importance of that play. And, and people forget, you know, John, I think, is top five or ten all-time rushing quarterbacks in the history of the NFL. The guy ran the ball really well throughout his career. This is the end of his career. Terrell Davis was back there to run the football now. And Terrell did a great job of it, but John had the capability. And also he just, man, he, he was a winner. He knew that we needed that first down. And he knew when he decided to tuck it and run, he was going to get that first down. And he did. And that's the kind of player he is. He's going to do whatever it takes to win that game. He will not lose a football game. One of the most competitive guys I've ever been around. And uh, that that's the kind of guy when you look to, you know, what does it take to win? What that guy's doing is what it takes to win. Yeah, and you've also shared with me stories about about him in training camp. It's it's not just during a game where yeah. a quarterback like that is leading his team and being a winner. Uh, you were telling me about when you were a rookie, you came into camp. Yeah, you know, I, I got obviously I have opinions about leadership. Um, you know, one of the things I think is, is most important is the culture of the organization. Right. You know, if you come in as a rookie and you observe individuals taking the easy way out, most often waterfalls a path of least resistance. Right. A lot of rookies will take the easy way out and they're sort of permeates your culture, allowing people not to do the hard thing, allowing people to take the easy way. And that affects it on game days. And, and you don't make those plays you need to make. We're, we're doing off season training. Now, John is, you know, a, almost I think. 18, 19 year vet, you know, does he need to be running sprints in the off season? Certainly no coaches making him do it, but I, I get down to run sprints. I look right next to him. There's John Elway running every sprint beat me by the way, <laughs> every sprint right there with everybody else, you know, and that was why we were so good is that was a culture we had. It wasn't just John, although John was the most visual uh, leader we had, but we had, I think, six or seven Hall of Famers on that team, and every one of them did the same thing John did. That sets the tone, and it starts with the veteran veteran leadership. 
think of my experience when I got down and I saw John running the sprints, I realized at this organization, you have to be here running sprints. I realized it right then. And I was a rookie. Every other rookie realized it too. That's the culture. Now the Broncos have a new quarterback coming in, in Russell Wilson. And um, what do you think that he brings to that organization? Is it the same kind of thing that there hasn't been that kind of stability for the Broncos at quarterback lately? They've had some struggles. Obviously, they had Manning towards the end of his career, and we all know they won Super Bowl 50 for him. Uh, since then, they, they, they've struggled. Uh, really, if you exclude L.A. Manning, the, the quarterback position in Denver has been kind of a, a tough spot to be, <laughs> unless you go way back. Uh, <laughs> Craig Morton. And- Craig Morton. Thank you, Craig Morton. Yeah. Uh, they, they, not a ton of success at that spot, but uh, you go out, and you, in, in today's game, you, you really – and you always have, but I'd say today's game maybe more so – evolution of football is you need a quarterback and they've struggled and so they decided to address it and I like what they've done I mean obviously Russell Wilson's a proven player but I, everything I hear about the guy and this is just like every other fan I hear what you hear I don't have any inside information is he's a high character kind of guy and, and I've always felt that character over talents what wins football games and wins championships and so if you mesh the two if you find a talented guy with a lot of character man, you've hit the jackpot. And I think maybe they have with Russell Wilson. Uh, again, as we story, we just talked about John. Is Russell that kind of guy? You know, is he there running sprints with everybody? Is he there doing the, the, the hard things with everybody? From what I hear, he is that kind of guy. So if that's the case, I think they got the right guy because we know he can play football. But it's the little things intangibles that we don't know that goes on inside the locker room that are so critical. Yeah, because, you know, to get to the NFL, all those guys are the most talented guys. So there's got to be something else besides talent that separates teams. Like it does. There really is. I mean, you know, so yes, everyone in the NFL is very talented uh, and everyone's very good. Now there's better players out there than others. You know, there's still more talented football players in the NFL than other guys. It's when those highly talented guys, uh, when character meets talent at a high level, there's your Hall of Fame players. You're not going to find many guys in the Hall of Fame that did not work really, really hard to get there. And also, you know, have the character around him. Because how many times have we heard about a great player that keeps getting overlooked because they were on terrible teams? And not not nothing against that player, but high tide raises all ships. If you're on good teams and you're a good player, you get more notoriety, you get more exposure, chances to go in the Hall of Fame are better. Because those are the kind of intangibles, those great players that they kind of drag everybody with them because they realize I can't win a Super Bowl without you guys. So I'm going to not just worry about myself. I'm going to focus on everybody else and making everybody as good as they can, however they go about doing that. Uh, and that's really when you get those kind of players, that, that's when you you do win those championships. Now, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the the guard position that you played because it is really, you know, the offensive line for one is unheralded usually. <laughs> and, and and on the offensive line, it's the guard who is, is usually the most anonymous. Um, well, if you go look, I, I tell people all the time, if you go look when I played football, the only guy making less money than me was a punter. So that's about the importance of my position in the eyes of the uh, the, the the coaches. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like like for example, one uh, one play I saw, I, I was just watching the Super Bowl video against Atlanta, um, oh, yeah. and, and uh, on that first drive, I saw uh, on one play 
you you didn't block the guy in front of you. You ran straight across the line at the snap to your left, and you took out a linebacker, and Terrell Davis picked up about 10 yards. So Power. You, Power play. Yeah. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of athleticism with the guard position. <laughs> yes, there is. I mean, there, there's athleticism with, with all five offensive line positions, honestly. The guard will do more polling than the others, um, and that's kind of what you saw in that power play, although we did not do a ton of polling in, in Denver. I did at Texas, but not at Denver. And our offensive line at Denver really required everyone to be athletic. Um, maybe the, the biggest dif- differentiator between the guard and the other positions is if it, it really focuses on what kind of defense is the defense running a three, four, four, three, most defenses when I was playing were four, three. So that meant that I had the biggest guy on the opposing team, the run stopper right on top of me. Then a four, three front, you got a three technique and a shade. And that meant that I had to butt heads with some big mammoth man trying to stop the run all day long and uh it's a difficult position to be in and so there was a premium on guards at that time because you know look at like the steve hutchinson's of the world against those four three fronts you had to be able to move that three technique and it required a guard to be able to to get underneath and and get leverage and get that done the the pass blocking skill set was more prevalent on the outside with the tackles and the speed rushers they had to face. I didn't see as much as that, although you did see some of it. Uh, but, you know, just certainly, you know, the guard was kind of a hybrid. You know, you, you could meet some really speed rushers inside there, and you meet some big run stoppers. The center just had the big fat run stopper, never any rushers. Outside, most of those ends weren't great run stoppers they could rush. But guard, you had to deal with both of it. Yeah, wow. So it's a, it's a hybrid position. And one of the guys you block for, Terrell Davis in the Hall of Fame. What's what's the difference between blocking for him um, and let's say you know your average, you know your average NFL back? Was there a difference blocking well, for Terrell or? Yeah, you, know, you can remember as an offensive lineman, everything that happens happens behind me. I, I have no clue where the running back's going. You know, at least if he's not a good running back. A good running back, I know exactly where he's going because he's seeing what I see, and he never misses a read. You know, there's a read progression for the running back when he and he's getting that football. As soon as the ball snap, if you watch running back, he never looks at the football. It's the quarterback shot, put it in his in his in his belly. He's reading that line. He's starting at the end against the tackle against the defensive end and progressing downward amongst those blocks to decide where that hole's going to be. And it's critical he hits the right hole. And Terrell never missed a read. A lot of that had to do with a great fullback leading him through the hole. And we had a guy named Howard Griffith. Name me a great running back. I'll name me a great fullback. Howard Griffith is an amazing fullback. He he led Terrell to the hole. And then once Terrell saw the hole, he'd hit that hole at 1,000 miles an hour. There's no tiptoeing. And when you see some running backs, they get a little timid because that's when they get hit. And, they, and sometimes they don't see that guy hitting them. And they don't like it. Terrell, he, he was a battering ram. He lowered his shoulder, and he was going to go full speed through that hole and take on whatever popped out and he missed or didn't see and just run into it. And a lot of times, he, no one touched him, and he took off. And that, that's why it's in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. All right, Dan, well, thanks so much for being with us. We're, we're, we're closing up this segment, and um, really great to, to see you as always. And um, Likewise. I, I hope we get to uh, chat several times during the season. 
Anytime, you know, I love talking about football. So (laughs) So do I. I'm I'm always here. (laughs) All right, Dad. Well, thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Michael. You have a great day. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, you too. Thank you, Dan. All right, just some fantastic insight there from Dan Neal, All-American at Texas, Super Bowl champion with the Denver Broncos, giving us insights we can't get anywhere else than on the game before the money on the Sports Map Radio Network. Remember to check out thegamebeforethemoney.com and the Game Before the Money podcast. Right, special thanks to Dan Neal, who gave us just a lot of great insight and a lot of things to watch for when we're watching games. You know, can we decipher the culture of a team and the standards the leaders set when watching games, when, when seeing players go for that extra yard or put forth that extra effort or maybe not? Maybe not going for that extra yard. Maybe not putting forth that extra effort. Those are small differences that we can see if we watch closely. Now, also, what was really interesting to me that Dan shared was read progressions for running backs. That was something that I had never known before. And we can watch for that also on Saturdays and Sundays, college and pro. You know, what happens once the running back gets the ball? How is he looking at the line? How quick is he getting there? What kind of decisions does he make as he heads to that line? That's great stuff to watch for. And I'm really excited to be watching for it this season and kind of compare running backs throughout the year. Thanks so much for listening to this second edition of The Game Before the Money. Please check out thegamebeforethemoney.com and also check out The Game Before the Money podcast. Broncos fans, there are episodes with Carl Mecklenburg and a couple of AFL legends, Goose Goslin and Al Denson, that I'm sure you'll enjoy them sharing stories about the early days of the Denver Broncos. The Game Before the Money podcast is available wherever you get podcasts and most episodes feature interviews with NFL legends. Now, Hall of Fame quarterback Bobby Lane always used to say that he never lost a game. He only ran out of time. We're out of time for the show today. Thanks so much for listening to The Game Before the Money on the Sports Map Radio Network. Thank you.